There are those souls that are both soft and strong, wise and wide open. Tokopa Turner is one of those souls. When Tokopa was just 15, she ran away from a violent, destructive home life and found herself having to navigate the system. The next decade was a hard one as she figured out on her own how to become an adult in a complicated, often uncaring world. This was the beginning of her search for belonging. This search has led her down many creative, beautiful paths, and today she is the founder of Dream School, weaving a living bridge to the other world, as well as the author of the award-winning book, Belonging, Remembering Ourselves Home. In Tokopa's words, in addition to tending dreams, my work focuses on restoring the feminine, reconciling paradox, elevating grief, and facilitating ritual. Join us as we explore a pathway home. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn, your host, and you're listening to Beyond, in-depth explorations into the ideas, philosophy, and paths taken by brave and experimental artists, makers, and activists who have found the courage to forge a new way forward and use their creativity to make their thing and change their world. One quick announcement. Within my private online community for artists and makers, quiet activists, diehard dreamers, and forever explorers, is for just a little longer, pay what you can with no monthly commitment. This will be changing within the coming weeks, so if you want to check Within out at the price you choose, now is the time. In Within, we gather to remind each other of our bigness and our beauty. We connect through monthly check-ins and virtual coffee dates, collaborations, to hold our hearts open even when the world is too much. We learn from others through conversations and intimate live Q&As with well-known artists and makers and through hands-on art-making workshops in order that we can teach ourselves what we've forgotten. And we make together through weekly open studios because making is how we rise up. It's how we bring the change we want to see. You can learn more at daphnecone.com forward slash within dash studio. And now on to the show. In this conversation with Tokopa, we talk about how to start down the path of belonging, both to yourself and the world, when Tokopa lost sight of her creativity and how she came back to it, finding your own values and your own voice, Tokopa's own creative process and how she gets to what's true, when it's time to commit and when it's time to let go and how to tell the difference, and cultivating a vision for your life in tune with your longing. May it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Welcome, Tokopa, to the Beyond Podcast. It is truly a treasure, a treat to have you here. I'm so happy to spend this time with you, Daphne, and your listeners. Thank you. So much of your work is about belonging, and you are a writer, among many other things. You're an artist. I'm curious how these began to show up for you, writing, and you do a lot of different types of art. So what let you know that you were a creative person, that you were on this path of creativity? And then we'll get into belonging. I love that. Well, um, I was actually raised in a Sufi commune. Uh, so if your listeners aren't familiar with Sufism, you probably are familiar with the poetry of Rumi. Uh, so Rumi was the original Sufi. <laughs> and so there were these different 
branches of Sufism that came to the West and um, my parents were involved in, um, in the Sufi order, the international Sufi order. And so we lived in a commune with many other people and this kind of, and also I think nine cats. <laughs> so wow. this lifestyle that we had really lent itself to creativity because there were so many people. I think at some point we had, we lived in this old tenement, tenement in Montreal and there was probably 18 rooms in our house. So there was a lot of different people coming and going, some transient, some stayed, and many different forms of creativity. So from the youngest age possible, I was encouraged or at least inspired to be creative. I think the first way that it showed up for me, this is kind of a funny story, but um, when I was eight years old, my mother sent me to a youth camp without realizing that it was a Christian youth camp. <laughs> um, but I think we had some neighbors down the street who were the same age who sent their kids there every year. And um, so I was sent off to this Christian youth camp and um, I was a weird little kid. I was really, really in love with God, with spirit, with source. And so I thrived in this environment. And um, I began to write these devotional poems. Uh, and I still have them. And I think the earliest would have been around the age of nine. And um, I remember that poem was called The Mist. And I wrote the poem about the mist that was rising off the water in the morning by, um, in this campground that we were staying on because I was so steeped in this sort of Christian uh, indoctrination we would do every single day there. I called it the, the as if Yeshua had sighed, <laughs> which is funny to think of a nine-year-old kid writing that one. But there you go. Devotional poetry was the first thing I did. It's amazing to me that you still have them all considering the childhood that you had and how you left home at 15 and had a fairly, I don't know, traumatic is definitely one word, but definitely transitory uh, period of time of your life. Like, how did you manage to carry those with you through all of that? There is a big gap of time where I was, there aren't any photographs of me. There wasn't um, any of my things were not kept. But the day that I um, was committed into the system, which was around the age of 15, I started a journal on that day. And it became a lifeline to me in that very traumatic and tumultuous time. Writing and dreams, writing down my dreams, became uh, this conversation that I was having with the only parent that I knew. And I didn't really realize this until many years later, but I really feel as if my dreams were parenting me through that difficult decade, whatever it was. And of course, they continue to. Um, but there was something, there was something that seemed to know better than I did. And um, it was speaking to me or conversing with me through my dreams. And so writing was really an anchor for me throughout that difficult period. Yes. It's interesting because 
writing often is an anchor, but it's not so typical that it's by interpreting or not even interpreting, but just having your dreams be such a big piece of that. And it's fascinating that that started so young for you and that you were able to see dreams, not just as something that happened while you were asleep, but as something that contained a lot of wisdom for you. Mm. Yeah, so it must be said that that idea was really given to me by the community that I grew up in. Dreams were encouraged uh, to be shared, to be remembered. So from a, as a very small person, I had some truly magnificent experiences in the dream time that probably spoke to the life I was going to lead because obviously I've devoted my life to dreams and to teaching others about their dreams and to writing about dreams and to writing to write from dreams <laughs> um so that was probably a kind of foretelling i remember when i was very small i had some epic experiences which would be less in that category of a narrative dream that tells a story about something that you're wrestling with at a psychic level, but more experiential dreams where I would actually have out-of-body experiences, lucid dreams, I would astral travel, some really, which I didn't know how to name at all at that age, but those were the kinds of things that were happening to me and they gave me this sense that there was something very powerful there that I could continue to draw wisdom from in order to feel a sense of orientation and guidance in my life. Well, I'm sure that dreams will continue to, in their own way, weave themselves into this conversation. I'm going to be looking more from the perspective of belonging and creativity. And I know that I imagine that uh, dreams will just naturally become a part of that, but we'll see. We'll see how it unfolds. And the reason I want to speak specifically to belonging and creativity, one is creativity is my thing. Um, it's the, the topic I'm really most, one of the topics I'm most fascinated by, but also people who listen are identify as creatives in some form or another. And belonging, because this is both really your topic and it is such an essential part of whether or not we make the thing we want to make, whether or not we share the thing that we make, and, and just where we take our place in the world. So if we begin with this idea of belonging, I wanted to actually start by having you explain how you define belonging so we can just lay that as the groundwork before we go on. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, so most of us think of belonging as a place that's outside of ourselves, that if we keep searching for it diligently and carefully, that one day we may finally come upon that place of belonging and we'll recognize it instantly and it will recognize us and then we will live happily ever after in a place of welcoming, a place of necessity, a place of belonging. But 
the problem with that way of thinking that I discovered for myself is that many people can spend an entire lifetime searching for that place in vain and instead feel the absence and the ache of not finding that place and always feeling it out of reach. And that ache, that absence can actually unconsciously drive us to make decisions in our lives that um, cause us to feel compromised or cause us to feel out of alignment with what we truly value and who we are. And so I began to talk to people and I began to ask other people who appeared from the outside to have a place of belonging to fit in somewhere, who appeared to be thriving in some sort of group or vocation or even just physically. And um, I began to speak to those people and lots of different people. And I was amazed to discover how few people felt this mysterious sense of belonging. And so I began to wonder if it wasn't just me, and it wasn't actually true at all that belonging was this thing outside of ourselves. But actually, if it is a skill, or better said, a, a set of competencies that we in modern times have lost or forgotten. And so it's difficult to define belonging because what I discovered in the writing of this book and my apprenticeship to these questions was that there are many different kinds of belonging. There is, of course, this belonging that we wish to feel in a community. Sometimes that looks like a spiritual path. Sometimes it's the family itself that we may or may not feel we belong to. But then there's the belonging that we may or may not feel to our own gifts and abilities. And that's a huge one, because if we don't have that form of belonging, then how really can we feel belonging in the rest of the world and in relationship to other people? So there's that one. And then there's also this um, belonging that may be missing at the ancestral level. So perhaps at some point in our ancestors' um, journey, they were displaced from their place of origin. And um, so I became curious in this book how that broken link carries through the generations and causes a sense of unbelonging in our personal lives. And then there are other forms, you know, there's the form of belonging that we may or may not feel to our own bodies um, and to nature and the natural world. And then there's that uh, ephemeral sense of belonging that we may or may not feel to something greater, to God or spirit or source or the creator, whatever, you, whatever language you like to use. So I think one of the very first competencies of belonging is really understanding these many kinds of belonging, understanding the dimensionality of belonging itself, how it can be 
um, practiced in order to uh, be developed in our lives and in the world. Um, and, and to understand the, um, I guess you could say the journey in moving from feeling like an outsider or feeling exiled from life itself into a place of belonging in our lives and in our world. Mm, okay. There's a lot. There's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot of. <laughs> That's why it's a hard question to no, answer great. because I don't think we can easily define it. <laughs> well, I th- no, I think you did a brilliant job. There's a lot of things I want to touch on in what you said, but I want to start with you began by talking about this absence and you actually you wrote about that you said we must begin with absence a longing for what might never be assuaged and follow it deep into the heart of exile which is what we just mentioned to discover what if anything can be made out of nothing so there's a couple things right there where first of all you mentioned absence in the beginning of your definition of belonging talking about belonging and and then also this this journey from exile into belonging and here you say deep into the heart of exile and i just want to get my head around this a little bit about beginning with an absence and and that we have to go there to begin to to see what if anything can be made you say more about that Mm, yes yeah, the presence of absence can be so huge in our lives. It can feel like an upwelling of sort of indistinct grief, which threatens to overwhelm us if we even touch it. And so mostly what we do is we try to outrun it. We make our lives busy. We make our lives full. And anything that we can do to avoid a confrontation with that wound, that terrible, unspoken wound, it's one of the things that people rarely speak about in the open is this sense of feeling like an outsider, of feeling like they don't belong in life itself. And so so what I want to do here is to offer the idea that, that that absence is important and that we have to turn towards it first before anything can be made. And um, for me, what that looked like was going into the origins of my own feelings of estrangement. So going into the origins of our estrangement to understand, well, what are the roots of why we feel so unbelonging in life. And I knew that I had to do that for myself if I was going to offer anything of value to anybody else on this conversation. And so you briefly touched on a bit of my um, story, which I tell uh, in much greater detail in the book um, of leaving home. Um, And so I grew up in quite a volatile and often violent home. 
and never felt a sense of belonging growing up there in my nuclear family. And um, it plagued me, even as a, a very small person, this feeling of that I was expendable, that I was unnecessary. And I often would play this game as a little kid where I would feel hurt or rejected. And I, so I would remove myself and I would go up to my room or sometimes I would run away and wait for somebody to come after me and say, come back. We want you to be with us. We want you to be here. We care about your feelings. But that person never came. And it happened so often that that person never came that I think I developed um, habitual behavior around that. And I think a lot of people can relate to this in their own way, that when you don't feel a sense of belonging, you withdraw even further and you hope that somebody's going to come after you and invite you back into the circle of belonging. But what happens if somebody never comes? What then? And so I think when we're talking about absence and looking at the wound, that we have to look at these core places where we began to feel exiled. And I think this happens at a few different levels. It certainly happens at the personal level, level where we may not feel seen or acknowledged, or we may feel um, we may have been dismissed or devalued or even derided. And we are taught that whatever qualities we possess um, that aren't in alignment with the family's values or the church's values should be hidden away or should be split off in some way if we want to gain acceptance. And so many of us go about this process. We go about trying to build a version of ourselves which is in alignment with the collective values. Um, and so this is where this splitting off begins is at the level of the personal but of course it also happens at the level of culture because we live in a certain culture that aggrandizes and elevates certain personality types and certain qualities and certain achievements and dismisses or makes fun of or devalues other qualities um, so that's the second level at which estrangement can happen and then there is, again, this third level, which is the ancestral level. And um, we can go into that later if that's something that's interesting to you. Yeah, and I also just want to acknowledge that I realize not only is the topic of belonging itself a big topic, but this is something that you know very deeply. You've written a whole book about, you teach about. And so this as deep as I'd like to go in our conversation, we will be staying somewhat on the surface because there's so much that you know, and we can only go so far in the time that we have. So I just want to recognize that there are many, many layers to what we're talking about that we, we won't have the chance to go into. Um, but that, that, that it does go a lot more deeply in, in your book belonging a lot more deeply. So, um, so from there, one of the things 
I want to come back to that you said earlier, and it ties into this idea of we go into where we come from, whether it be personally, culturally, or our ancestors or ancestrally, and look to where we stopped feeling like we belonged. Uh, But you also mentioned this in defining belonging, how one aspect of that is belonging to our own gifts and abilities. And I think that is particularly important as it relates to creativity. So uh, say a little bit more about one, what it means, the sense that we don't belong to our own gifts and abilities, and then how that connects to this breaking apart, you know, the, the personal, the cultural and ancestral separation that we experience from our own gifts and abilities. Mm, Okay. Well, you know, in the example we were just talking about, you may have grown up in a family where the, the family is Um, aggrandizement of certain qualities might have looked like, well, we really value hard work and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, and being happy with what you have and just getting it done. Um, Whereas creativity might have been seen as something that is insipid or for sissies or which will never make you a living or which Um, have no value in the home or in the culture now if that was or you know or your family could look like something well we really value intellectual accomplishment or physical accomplishment you know like athletics but um but we're not interested in painting or writing or whatever it is in fact it may be so Um, unrecognized in your home that it's not even there's not even a place for acknowledgement of that thing which can sometimes worse than it be worse than it being dismissed (laughs) because it's not even seen on your landscape right Um, and so if you grew up in a home like that you will understand that if I want to belong in this family if I want to um, be safe and have a sense of security within this family, then I have to do as I am told and grow myself into a person that is hardworking or responsible or um, practical. And so your creativity at that point may be put aside or it may even worse, insidiously be developed internally as, um, uh, you know, we begin to mimic what we're taught. So over time, you may become estranged from your own creativity because you have learned that it's not important or especially your art is not good enough or is not is valueless somehow in your family or in your culture or whatever it is. <clears throat> and um, the result over the long term is that estrangement from our creativity uh, looks like not belonging. We don't, we no longer belong to it and it no longer belongs to us. And so um, it doesn't, it doesn't cease to belong to us, but we just are not in relationship with it. We are estranged from it. 
So we have to, at some point, enter into the wound of being separated from our creativity. <clears throat> and that might look like um, all kinds of negative programming and uh, derision that we have received around our creativity and attempting to heal or form or restory a new relationship with our creativity over time and welcome it back into belonging with us. Now, you, I mean, you grew up in a home, Tokopa, that was, like you said, it both really encouraged, if not directly encouraged your creativity, you were certainly inspired creatively. And yet there was also at the same time, this, it was violent. It was very, you didn't feel like you fit and nobody seemed to come after you. Nobody did come after you when you would go disappear. Um, how where where did you have to go to come back to your creativity or did you did you ever leave it oh definitely <clears throat> um it was a unique childhood in the sense that i had this larger community that we were embedded in at first through certain ages of my life and then at a certain point, my, my mother and my stepfather moved out of that community and we became a kind of traditional nuclear family, which was very unusual for me. We grew up in the heart of the city and I was exposed to a lot of artists. Um, but then we moved into the suburbs and suddenly I was in this very wealthy, very white, very privileged um, part of the world that had no diversity and very little creativity and so there were these you know you sort of pointed out there were these simultaneous experiences going on um but uh at the point that we moved into the suburbs and i was um thrust into this whole other lifestyle and um community or lack of community that was the point at which I think I was very much discouraged creatively. And in my own home, I think there was a real patriarchal influence in, in my family, which would celebrate the males in my family uh, as artists and um, as intellectuals, whereas my gifts went unrecognized. And that was very, very difficult for me. And I struggled for decades uh, with. Um, exposing any of my creativity to the world uh, and it really wasn't I, I remember I you know I told you earlier I was I've been keeping journals since I was a very young person but I would hide them away nobody would ever read anything I had to say and it wasn't until I met my mentor her name was Annie and she was a Jungian psychotherapist and she was a very gifted writer and she um, invited me to take part in this writing circle. And this was really now in my 20s. Um, and I, I remember getting into this writing circle and it was called proprioceptive writing. And what we would do was we would have a prompt, 
a little writing prompt and the group of us would just write spontaneously on this prompt and we'd have 15 minutes and we just had to never put our pen down and after 15 minutes time would be called you'd have a moment to finish up and then everybody would share their writing in the circle and I used to sweat through all of my clothes <laughs> before this moment would happen because I was so terrified to share my writing with anybody else. And um, I really had this profoundly ingrained habit of, even though I was this incredibly um, creative person, I would have to be completely anonymous and do it completely privately. So this was my first experience of sharing my writing. And um, I think the reason why it was so terrifying was yes on one level this fear of being judged of not being good enough of not having something interesting to say but on the on another level that fear i think was a kind of exhilaration that there was something so potent about writing and sharing my writing that i was just tapping into for the first time and um, because I loved it so desperately, <laughs> that's why it was so scary for me. Um, people who are not writers don't really have this problem. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't obsessively fear exposure like artists do. Um, and so Annie, every time I saw her, she told me I was an artist every single time. She's, and I never believed her. I always felt like that word was way too big and way too pompous and, um, and way um, too luxurious for a person like me to, to call myself that. Um, but eventually, you know, she kind of hammered it into me. Uh, and after a number of years, I started to submit my writing to be published. And that was the beginning of what would become a decades long publishing career, uh, which has now resulted in me actually writing a book, writing my first book, a very late bloomer. Um, but, uh, but what do I want to say about that? I guess I just want to say that having a mentor, having someone outside of your um, immediate experience who can inspire you and who can help draw that truth, that artistic nature out of you is really essential for me and probably essential for a lot of people. Um, even if it's not someone who you are officially um, working with in the context that I was in a psychotherapeutic environment, but even somebody who inspires you like an author or an artist, someone who draws that excitement out in you, that trepidation, that exhilaration, I think is really essential. We need someone outside of ourselves to show us who we are becoming. It's true. It's an interesting, um, not sure what the best word, but it's an interesting challenge that we both have to turn deeply within to discover who we're becoming. And we also have to have people outside of us to help us see who we are becoming and to actually guide us into who we are becoming. And somehow with both of those maintain a, a balance 
so that we don't lose ourselves in either direction. Mm-hmm. But I want to speak first to this whole thing about the sharing, because it's true. This is huge. It's been huge for me. It's huge for every single person I've ever interviewed, worked with anyone. And you just spoke about it. And then you also had said this in belonging. You said, I meet so many women in my work who have gorgeous ideas, but are terrified to release them into the world. This terror is a combination of things, but at the fundamental level, it is the fear of criticism, the inner critic, a spokesperson for all the diminishing voices in our past and in our culture. And uh, the inner critic is the first gatekeeper, gatekeeper of true belonging. It barrages us with butts, but you will look or sound ridiculous, but you aren't as talented as X and so on. The challenge of this gate is not to measure up, but to use a different barometer altogether. So I read that and I'm like, okay, so in a world where we have basically grown up being trained to measure up, how do we begin to come up with and then follow a completely different barometer? Well, I hope you don't mind, but I would love to return to dreams at this point because um, I don't know if um, if those uh, people who have read my book are aware that everything in this book has come from my dreams. Everything, all of the ideas, well, maybe not everything, you know, because some things just come from life and from experience, but so much of the creative inspiration I receive comes through my dreams. And this is why I think the conversation around belonging, creativity, and dream work should be intertwined because dreams um, really spring up from that source of originality. They really spring up from that well of unique thought from the source uh, within. And the reason why I love dream, well, one of the reasons why I love dream work so much is because of this endless creativity that is brimming through us at all times. And no two dreams are ever exactly alike and dreams provide us with imagery and narrative which shows us our creative edge it shows us where new ideas are coalescing for the first time on the very threshold of becoming and so i have always drawn from that source, even if it is just to write about and to wrestle with what the images are that are coming up in my dreams. And they they are just this provider of so much richness and newness. And um, so when I talk about a different barometer, I am talking about no longer seeking guidance from outside sources, but actually turning within to find a different authority, a different source of originality and guidance. Now, not everybody wants to pursue dream work, and I respect that, Um, but the 
there are many different ways that you can turn within, <laughs> whether it's through meditation or whether it's through just daydreaming ideas or whether it's through rest and pleasure and beauty. There are many different ways that we can turn to that source of guidance, movement, anything somatic, um, and things will spontaneously occur in the imagination. If we aren't interested, let's say, in doing dream work, then there's always these other ways of basically what I hear you saying is both connecting to the body and connecting to the knowing that is not necessarily of the mind, but something deeper than that. Well, it's the imagination, right? Mm -hmm. That's really what dreams are. They come direct from the imaginative uh, capacity. <laughs> Anything that exists in the world exists because it was once first imagined. That is the canvas upon which ideas are cast first is in the imagination and we grow the imagination by reducing um, our dependence on external sources of information and instead tuning into the um, the inner wilderness to see what spontaneously arises there. And it can be a very scary process for some people, for all of us, because um, we have to penetrate the fog of confusion that precedes creativity. <laughs> There's an emptiness or an obscurity, which is our first experience when we turn with it. And we have to stay with that not knowing before something significant arises. So it's kind of like showing up at your journal blank page for the first time and having nothing of value to say, or at least that's your perception, or showing up to the canvas with no inspiration of what you want to create and allowing yourself to really penetrate those initial dismissals and invalidations and criticisms that rise up to get beyond that until some small spark, whether it's an idea, whether it's a feeling, whether it's an image, whether it's a dream, comes through with its small voice. And the work then is listening to that small voice and somehow growing it by amplifying it in some way, whether that looks like creating ritual around it, whether that looks like painting it or dancing it or singing it or writing a poem about it, growing it so that it, that voice becomes louder and louder and soon or however long it takes, that voice becomes the voice of authority for you. And the other voices on the outside, the voices of authority that you perhaps used to listen to, just fall away with insignificance. And that is, is that what you would say is really what belonging is? I think it's one of the things. Um, 
I think there's a, first of all, I think belonging should be a living conversation from many different disciplines. And so I've started something here or I've contributed to something that's already been started. And I think there are many contributions we need to have to this conversation. But I would say it's one of the first things that we have to do is, you know, first understanding that dimensionality of belonging, looking at those places in our life where we may feel belonging and where we don't feel belonging. And where we don't feel belonging, we have to ask ourselves, where, what were the origins of our estrangement from those, uh, those things that don't feel like they belong to me? And then entering into that place of exile is a very big process, a huge part of the process. And in the book, I call it initiations by exile because I think those periods of being separated from what you love can go on a long time and they can be very heartbreaking and difficult. But in that process, I do believe that we are actually being initiated and we are being initiated into our true belonging, which is to say, um, becoming aligned with our true values and our original creativity, which is on the other side of that, which is what we've been talking about, this yeah. work of then growing that originality and finding a voice within it. But once we've done that, then there are many steps beyond that to create belonging, including how we interact with each other and with the outside world and with nature. Okay. And that's more of the skills and or set of competencies that you touched on in the very beginning. Yes. Well, I, I would say there's probably, I would identify about 15 of these different competencies and they range from the inner life to the outside world, to the ancestral uh, realms and, um, and then to to the culture that we live in. Just to, to back up a little bit briefly to touch on the idea of using dream work. If someone, because this is your area, if someone isn't working with somebody or if they like wake up and they're like, I don't really have many dreams or most of the time I don't remember my dreams. Is how do you recommend that people work with their dreams if they aren't actively with a guide or uh, and they just want to explore, as you say, this original source of creativity within themselves a little more? Right. Deep? Well, one for one thing I'd like to just start off by saying is that everybody dreams. Even if you don't remember your dreams, you are dreaming. And um, this idea that I don't dream or I don't remember my dreams is actually not true. That anybody can, with a little bit of elbow grease can practice at remembering their dreams. And it actually doesn't take very much. It actually can be a very simple pivot to remembering your dreams. Um, so I've put a bunch of resources together to help people recover their dream life. And I think that's really the first step is, is recovering your dream life and recovering um, its value and importance in your life. 
And, um, and then from there, really the single most important thing to do is to write down what you do dream. And even if that is just a fragment, those fragments can sometimes be the most powerful dreams of all. But until we give them validity and value by writing them down, we can't deepen our dreaming practice. So that would be the very first step. Um, I actually created a course called Dream Drops, which is a 30-day um, course in dreams. So every day a new teaching arrives to your inbox and kind of leads you through this process of deepening your relationship to your dream life. Um, so people can find that on my website if, if they're interested in going deeper. Uh, but from there, once you've remembered your dreams, the possibilities are endless. You can dance them, you can sing them, you can write poetry from them, you can paint paintings, you can create stories. I mean, we have stories in our culture of people who have uh, invented powerful, life-changing mathematical theorems from their dreams. So, um, so really, it's just endless, the creativity that can be derived from working with your dreams. I love thinking of dreams as this original, this source of our original creativity, and that we all have within us this imagination i mean and my husband has said many times like he'll wake up from a dream and i've said this too to him but it's like wow i wrote that song how is that possible that i wrote that song you know that you remember having written a song in a dream or a poem or something You're like so wait that means a part of me is capable of that and yet i never would have guessed that that was in me oh. yes and i think the be the way that i think of dreams is that they are actually nature, naturing through us. So in the same way that I have this wonderful lilac tree right outside my window that I'm looking at right now, and it's bursting all of these spring lilacs into existence, this is what dreams are from us. They're fruiting from us. And so I do think it's us, but I also think that it's something greater fruiting through us. And isn't that the definition of great? creativity that many artists talk about this being visited upon by some genius it doesn't necessarily belong to us but i think that we can become a hollow enough bone to not impede that genius from coming through us yeah yes so speaking of that and this idea of here's this this whatever it is it's coming through us and actually okay that that's a good I'll, I'll speak to something that you wrote because you say when we allow things to be decided spoke and created not by us but through us in shifting our responsiveness to the inner call rather than the outer one our mission finds a lens of nobility in its service to the whole yes and two things here one we get really, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I get really caught up in this idea that it's me. It's me. It's by me as opposed to through me. And I love this, not just the shift of that, and I'd like you to speak to that a little bit, but also that it changes that when we become more present to that and we actually create 
uh, and I'd like to hear a little like how we create in, in service that, how we make that shift, but that our mission finds this lens of nobility, that there's something about our connection to everything when we mm. do that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like all of nature, you know, all of nature is mutually flourishing as Robin Wall Kimmerer puts it in her wonderful book, Braiding Sweetgrass, one of my favorite books of 2019. Um, and so, so yes, th- you know, the ecosystem behaves in this way. Everything mutually flourishes. It is an interbeing. It is an interconnected organism, all working together. And we are not separate from that. It is only, I think, the creation of this great human drama where we have excluded nature and, you know, treated it as, you know, commodity for us, for us, for our resources to exploit. That is the problem. But actually, we are embedded in this ecosystem. So doesn't it make sense that we too would have nature moving through us and inclining us to flourish, inclining us to give fruits, inclining us to be generous, to be part of something larger. And this is one of the most exciting things that happens when you come together in a dreaming circle Um, especially over time with a group of people, is you start to really see how you are an ecosystem. And the struggles that you are contending with personally are often reflected in the other members of the circle. And that's when you realize that it is you aren't an island. You are actually part of this ecosystem that is as a circle trying to work something out together. So in my own creative practice, I always begin with the personal. I always begin with where is my edge? Where is my hardship? Or where is my joy? Or where is my excitement? What is the thing that is culminating for me right now? And then I try to use that as the jumping off point for any creativity. And when I do that, the response that I often get is people say to me, I feel like you are speaking my thoughts. And these are my feelings that I haven't been able to articulate just yet. And the reason why that is, is because I'm drawing from that personal edge, which I think is just a a microcosmic expression of this larger circle of the ecosystem. We're all coming up on that same edge. Not all of us, but many of us can be coming up on the same edge. And that is why it's so important to be constantly working at that edge, constantly being in process with our edge. Um, yeah, I hope I didn't get too off no, topic. That's there. great. And I actually, I, so I have a follow up to that because one thing I've noticed is when I write and share something, if I write where I'm exploring ideas and write from my head, it can sound great and people like it. It's not that they don't like it, but I notice that when I come from my body and there's an energy and I write from there, 
it's a very different kind of response. It's more of what you're saying of, oh my gosh, that's just what I was thinking. Or like there's a more, it's, it's almost like an energy meeting the energy. And I'm curious about your thoughts around that, like this difference of expressing from the head versus from the body or the heart or whatever, however we want to break those apart. But do, yeah, so I think yeah. I think what you're talking about is the risk that we have to take in order to create something truly original. It takes great risk because not only are we braving into an unknown territory for ourselves, um, exposing ourselves to the abyss or the wound or the unknown that is there for us. Um, but that's the only place from which something truly original can be made. That being said, um, I do think that the other faculty, which is the mind, uh, coalescing and editing and um, putting things into form is also incredibly important. It may be that it's just an order thing, that we don't want that faculty to come first because right. it'll probably circumvent the, the true raw um, product that wants to emerge from our originality. Um, so it's a little bit like... Um, uh, knowing who's boss, and I think the 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 body, um, the feeling life, the um, intensity of our own process really should be allowed to emerge first, and then the other thing can come in after and put it into a wonderful form. And if that part's really hard, that part can be quite grueling, you know. That's um, you know editing and. Um, uh, yeah, you know, organizing thoughts into a cohesive pattern. Um, that's nobody's favorite part. You know, when I wrote my book, I actually wrote it all. I wrote my book by hand, which wow. is kind of crazy, but um, it's always been the way that I've written. So it's how I did it. And uh, what I did is I would, I would just dedicate the swaths of time to sabbatical and I would just for say a month at a time take everything off my plate and just devote myself to being a, a kind of a channel to whatever wanted to come through on that day and many days there was nothing <laughs> but but there were also days where stuff came you know I would have a powerful dream and I would write it down and and beautiful ideas would emerge from listening to that dream um, but then here I had this you know, uh, many, many journals worth of patchwork of ideas and the whole thing then had to be kind of put into some sort of cohesive form. And thankfully, I had a wonderful editor who uh, is so great at organizational thought, and she helped me through that process. I'm not recommending this method of writing because um, I think if I were to do it again, I would probably organize a... Um, a framework first and then allow the creativity to emerge in that framework, I think that would probably be an easier way to go about it. But as a result, it took about five years to write this book. Wow. 
That is quite a process, the way that you do that. That's amazing. But what I love about what you're saying here is just speaking to that power of really being present for what is raw, what is true, and then organizing later and letting this move through you. Like you said, you would devote a month and then some days there was nothing. And then other days you either had a powerful dream or and things just came and you created the space for that to happen. And actually that brings me to another aspect of creativity that I have had over the course of my life, very different perspectives, very different feelings around. And that is the idea of commitment. So I want to read something that you said about commitment. You said, um, like the alchemical crucible, commitment is the vessel in which something raw and undisciplined can be transformed into something valuable. And then you said, this commitment ensures that in times of doubt and inadequacy, we we keep returning to it to deepen our craft. Commitment in these terms is not an obligation, but a deep devotion to that which we love. And that was important for me because sometimes there's this sense of commitment where it's almost like, okay, I made this commitment, but it doesn't feel true anymore or it doesn't feel right. And then there's this other way of looking at commitment of, this deep devotion to that which I love. And I would like, like if you can talk one, there's kind of a two-part question, but the, the value of commitment, but also knowing when something can be let go of in favor of something else that wants to emerge. Mm. Mm, a timely question. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, <clears throat> I think I was transformed by this discovery when I looked at the word discipline and discovered that at the root of discipline is the word disciple. And disciple is someone who is devoted to someone or something that they love. And this changed everything for me because I realized that we put up all kinds of obstructions to being in relationship with our creativity. And we probably do this for any number of reasons, you know, fear of what could emerge, um, the terror of that uh, period of confusion, of nothingness, that anything will ever appear on this empty canvas. Um, there are lots of reasons why we avoid this encounter with her originality. Um, but if we set the container, if we decide, you know, every day for this hour, I'm going to show up to that which I love, even if nothing happens, but I am going to open the space for it to arrive. That is how magic happens. It really is deeply tied to our setting the space, to our allowing there to be an emptiness that precedes creativity. And so this changed my idea around commitment completely because um, I think that I shared a dream in the book of 
somebody who's trying to play their guitar, but it, the, the strap on their guitar had broken and it made the guitar very happy, uh, sorry, heavy. And so they couldn't um, really wield it properly and it was awkward and that was the dream. Um, and this dream was showing how the strap, which is the tethering to what we love, it is that, that, that commitment, that bond can be broken quite easily if we're not tending to it. And so commitment or discipline becomes that, um, that tethering. It becomes that place where we keep showing up. Very similar to any love relationship. Yes. You know, if you if you if you bring your attention to someone you love and you you really show up with presence for them, then they eventually will flower and share the secrets of their heart with you. But if you keep ignoring them and dismissing them and thinking they're not important, then eventually they will disappear and um, become distant from you. And the same is true for our creativity. And um, with regards to your other question, yes. you know, what, when is creative, when is uh, it time to let go of a commitment? I mean, that's a very sort of elusive question, but I think um, when things start to feel forced or untrue or start to feel like we're pushing something all the time that doesn't uh, bring us some sense of well-being or connectedness or pleasure then it's likely time to give it some space and it may be that it returns again in its own time or it may be that something else comes up in its place and, and that can be quite hard to do to let things go and there may be a grieving process that's necessary um, but you know nature is always in this process of um, death and renewal. And I think it's important that we listen to the inner cues to know uh, where we are in that cyclic process. Yeah, it feels like the more we develop just what you're talking about, this inner authority, the easier it becomes to know, to, to hear, whatever it is that we need to hear about like, yes, time to let this go, or it may not feel great right now, but it's important to stay with it. Mm. So mm. it comes back to the sense of belonging to ourselves enough that we can trust what it is that we're discovering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, sometimes just like in relationships that can become harmful or feel as if they're falling short of who we've become we may find that there are creative forms that come and go for us as well um, for a long time i was a professional musician and um, i wrote albums of original music and i toured with my band and um and there came a point though where being a professional musician created more hardship than it created well-being for me. And that was a point in my life that was filled with grief because I had all of these dreams attached to music that, um, that had to die. And I started receiving these dreams about these 
I remember one in particular, I dreamt about this old blues musician and he was just so beloved in his community and this whole community gathered around and there was this feast and this celebration of his life. But there was also a sense that he was dying. And um, I think this was a period in my life where then I think it took years that I really had to deeply grieve the death of that art form for me for a bunch of reasons. Um, but what I discovered was that I could put more of my creative energy into my writing. And the book was born sometime after that or in the years after that. Uh, and I realized that there was a music, there was music available to me in writing as well. And, and often actually the way that I write is to sound out to sound out the sentences that I'm writing. The sound of words is as important to me. The sonority of words is, is as important to me as their meaning. And um, that might be, be because of my experience as a musician um, or vice versa. <laughs> yeah. But well, yeah. That, that actually speaks really well to something I had wanted to bring up and I don't have to say a whole lot more than what you just shared, but I want to read what you wrote, which is, this is the living vow to show up with increasing presence for the moment, to make an honest encounter with your longing at every turn, to listen to it, learning which way the energy of your life wants to go, which is exactly what you're talking about. The energy of your life at some point was no longer wanting to go in the direction of a music career but now in, in the direction of writing. And you were able to, despite how painful it was, also just be really, to trust it and to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And I think that's one of the great competencies of belonging is actually longing. And it's there embedded in the word longing. Longing is actually holy. And most of us think of longing as something that we want to get away from because it it's this ache for something that's out of our reach. Sometimes we don't even know for what, but we're longing for something. And sometimes that longing can be uncomfortable, whether it's a longing for a significant other or a longing for community or a longing to be seen. But in the Sufi way of understanding it, longing is actually the calling homeward. It's the calling of the beloved to the who you are meant to become. And so in, in Sufi understanding, longing is meant to be there. It's important that it's there because it calls us into that presence from you were talking about in that quote, which is the, that edge um, of where we are bravely working, where we are being activated, where we are being called in what direction. And so that longing is actually holy. It's so, that is so beautiful. And I think about, uh, there was another point in which you talked about, let me find it. Um, 
Oh, vision. We must keep a vision of how we want our lives in the world to look and work towards weaving those first threads together. Even when the garment of belonging seems flimsy, flimsy and inadequate, we must keep to the task until it substantiates. And I think the reason that came up just now is because I think about if we have these longings and then we follow the longing, where does vision fit into that? Because um, sometimes what we hold as our vision is can actually be uh, in conflict with the longings. Does that make sense? Mm, say more. Maybe you could give me an example. Okay. So I think for a long time, when I was starting and growing my first business, my visions were very tailored to what I had come to understand around what a vision is, what a, how the kind of vision you hold for a, for a business. So it had a lot to do with, it's going to grow this much and I wanted to have this kind of impact and da, 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 da. all these things that were in a lot of ways outside of myself. And I think um, were not actually deeply connected to my longing but were more culturally associated with the idea of a vision. And now I feel like that's shifting. And the way you spoke just now about longing, it's like, I think, well, they kind of have to, they evolve together. It's like this tuning, this going within to feel mm. the longing, to follow the longing, to be attentive to the longing. And then as I move with the longing, it feels like the vision would evolve with that. I, I think that's beautifully said. I think that's so true. Um, I do think there's a difference between uh, a picture of how we want things to turn out and a vision of how we want to live. And... I think the difference lies in its origin. So if you have a picture of how you want things to turn out, which is based on, say, an outward um, image of success, that's different than having a vision for the life that you're meant to be living. And, and even then, even when you have a vision for the life you want to lead, like you said, even that can shift and change with your longing. I know the vision that I had for my life when I was 20 is very different from the vision that I have for my life now. And so it has, obviously, uh, we're organic beings who are constantly changing and shifting in response to our environments. And, um, and, and so we have to be willing to allow that vision to also shift and change. Yeah. 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 Okay. But, uh, okay. So then let's take one minute though with that, stay with that because this importance of holding the vision, mm. what, what role does that play? Like how, how do you see it as so important? Well, I think in the context that I wrote that quote, it, what I was referring to is belonging itself. And we may have a vision 
of what belonging should look like or what belonging can look like is a better way of putting it. And yet we have so far to go in the culture that we live in, which keeps us so separate and keeps us disconnected from nature and from spirit. And it's a huge, almost insurmountable battle uh, to fight <laughs> against, you know, to come into the truth of that vision. And so what can we do but just take these small steps continually towards it and that's the image of the flimsy garment. You know, you may just have one thread, which is, say, a, a small group of people that you gather with, that every time you're with, you feel completely who you are. And you want that group of people and, and that feeling to carry out to every other day of your life. But it doesn't. It only happens, say, once every three months or once a year or whatever it is. But you do have that one thread. And so you think, well, how can I extend that thread and grow it? And maybe you find a different way, which is a way of in involving yourself with ritual which helps you to stay connected to what's important to you and then maybe there's a third thread which is reaching out to others to help them feel inside of belonging and these are just flimsy threads and they may seem like nothing as you're weaving them together but perhaps there will be something substantial enough that when the young ones who are growing up around you see what you have done, they don't have to start from scratch. They can now start with what you've built in this place, what you've rooted in this place. Well, also the other thing that is so important about that, I feel, is instead of saying, like the tendency may be to say, oh God, with those people, I feel so great. I feel such a strong connection. I wish I had more of that. Like I found myself saying things like that. I wish I had more of that in other parts of my life. And instead you're turning that around and saying, oh, I get to notice that and say, that's one more seed. That's one more thing. Okay. So I want more of that. So what are ways that I can bring more of that? It might not be, maybe it's through a ritual or maybe it's through some art or maybe it's through something else, but it's, an, it's instead of feeling the lack in, or the absence of in contrast to what it is, it's a way of saying, oh, I can cultivate, I can actively cultivate more of that in my life so long as I hold that vision. Exactly. And that's how we move from belonging being something that's out of reach that we're always searching for to it actually being a skill, a set of competencies that we keep weaving into and it grows. And so ultimately, we do have to maintain vision towards that life that we want to create. Because if we don't maintain a vision, then it's very possible that the threads will just fall away and this, the progress that we have made towards belonging can be lost. So it's important to keep tending to those things that are important and just sort of circling back to creativity. It's like this practice of um, a container, you know, of keeping the container 
alive and active and, and adorning even the emptiness while it is slowly being filled so that we can recognize even if there's just a trickle, it's not the flow that we're, we're ultimately longing for, but instead we, we honor that trickle until it grows into a rivulet and then that we honor that rivulet until it grows into a river and soon you have a torrent moving through um but i will say that the trickle can last for a long time <laughs> i was just remembering um with a friend of mine the other day how many decades went by where i was longing for any kind of momentum with my writing, with my teaching in the world. And um, literally decades went by with me constantly weaving these flimsy threads into this garment of, of belonging. Um, and it took a long time to, to, to grow and to have some momentum of its own, which is something that I'm really enjoying now, uh, a sense of um, ah, finally, you know, there's a sense of uh, the, the, the call and response is alive. And, um, and so, it, so what do you do in that long period, but just keep coming back to your vision, noticing has your vision changed? If, if it has, that's okay. You can do, adjust it and change it, but keep tending to those places of, of joy and connectedness and belonging in our lives um, so that they can have a chance to substantiate in the container of your attentiveness. I love that you said that because we, we hear a lot of, of overnight supposed success stories and we hear things about, oh, I just submitted this one piece. And I mean, I've interviewed people where they've said this, like I just submitted this one piece and then it got accepted to the New Yorker and now it's on the cover of the New Yorker and I haven't even graduated from college. And I mean, that's the, the, these are real stories. And there's also the stories that most of us experience, which are much longer, much more drawn out. And to just know that that's also part of the path. Like it's certainly been my path. Mm. <laughs> the longer path has been definitely mine. I want to ask one more thing before we go into the last part of the interview. And because I just loved this so much. So you said originality then becomes the practice of, of unhindering what's already there. This work is essential to belonging because your creative offering is like a holy signal to those who carry a similar vibratory signature. In hearing or seeing what you've created, they will find a sense of belonging with you and by being found, so will you. I, there are so many parts of that that are just really beautiful. And the parts that speak to me here is one that your creative offering is like a holy signal to those who carry a similar vibration and i think one or vibratory signal is one thing that i have gotten caught up in all the time and i hear it from so many people is like you cast the net wide because you either don't want to leave anyone out or speaking for myself, like, I don't want to be rejected by anybody. I want to leave all possibilities. I want to be validated by as many people as possible. And in so doing, miss the people that truly my work, my creativity can resonate with because it's not a clear enough 
message, the signal isn't so strong. So this, this sense of creating your original voice, art, peace, creativity, and as a holy signal to others, I just think is really important. And I also would like you to just say what you mean by they will find a sense of belonging with you and being found. So will you. <laughs> it's kind of lovely. Hey, yes, it is. Well, I, I just think of those people in my life that I admired so much and maybe I'll just return to Annie because um, she was just such an important person in my life. I discovered Annie because she had a television show um, on a, a local um, Ontario TV station where I used to live in Ontario. And um, it was all about dreams. And so she would sit down with somebody every week in a cozy studio and do dream work with them. And I had never seen anybody do what I had dedicated my life to until I, I saw Annie doing this. And so merely the act of seeing her validated me on my path because it showed me that there was actually a field, there was um, a place where I could step into and, um, and other people were interested in it too, or else it wouldn't be on television, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's a very funny thing, you know, the people that you admire, even sometimes the people that you envy, they can give you a sense of which direction to go in your own life, or at least a, um, an affirmation of the path that you're already on. And so Annie's very presence acted as a, a holy signal, which reached me and which said to me, this is a place of belonging. And sure enough, I followed it. And that's an important piece that you have to follow those signals, right? In whatever way you can find a way to connect with those people or read more about those people. I, I call it the caramel ripple, you know, it's like when you're eating a bucket of ice cream and there's a caramel ripple and you've got to follow it. <laughs> you know, the deeper you go, the fatter and sweeter it gets. Um, so, so you, it's not just a one way thing. You have to respond to it in some way. And I've always done that in my life, in my life is follow those yeses and those resonances, um, and those holy signals. And so what ha ended up happening is that Annie became an incredibly pivotal poor. I, you know, I looked her up one day, I think I was even just flipping through the newspaper and I discovered she lived in Toronto where I was living. And I thought, what a revelation. I can just call her up and book an appointment for, um, to meet with her to do dream work. And so that's exactly what I did. And, and a, a historic uh, mentorship was born from that um, and so on and so forth. So, so from Annie's perspective, 
Annie had to get to the point where she, you know, decided that dreams were important enough that she could study them in uh, Jungian circles and that she could then brave her work out into the open and take the risk of putting a show on television and probably getting rejected many times before someone said yes. So she went through all of that to follow her own um, longing and resonances. And as a result, this very unique field that she created uh, became a holy signal for me. And then all that followed from, from my life. So, you know, it's this funny reversal that we search our whole lives for a place of belonging, but actually it's, it's already there. And it's only when we unhinder ourselves from the obstacles to our originality, to our being um, in alignment with what we truly value, what we truly love, what our true gifts are, and grow that signal that we realize that our lives are actually a shelter of belonging for others. And this is this wonderful reversal that we have to be that which we are longing for and when we do that it creates belonging not only for others but then for ourselves right because the people who are attracted to what we're doing are obviously going to be resonant with us in both directions and so it creates a kind of um it creates a web of connection with others who are like-hearted. That's beautiful. Thank you. So, okay, we'll move into the last part, which is a three-part thing. I, I share something, then I'll share where people can find you, and then I'll ask you one last question. So the first thing is, uh, well, actually, I, I share where people can find you first. So, so you had mentioned earlier about the resources for the dream, dream drops, as I was called. Yes, Dream Drops is one of the courses that I offer in the Dream School. Yes. Okay. So Dream Drops, along with a lot of other resources and a lot of other, and you can find out about Tokopa's book and um, everything, everything that she's creating and offering on her website, which is Toko, T-O-K-O-P-A.com. And uh, then, just there's a dash in there just so people can find it, T-O-K-O dash pa.com excellent thank you and also on instagram is that I, I know i follow you but is it tokopa is that also with a dash it's not actually just to simplify at tokopa okay so at tokopa and then on facebook at tokopa turner and tokopa was telling me at the beginning just that every day there's something new on instagram so things there is where she's sharing anything that is like whatever's happening today. So you can really be present to whatever is most current through Instagram and through Facebook. With that, I'd like to share a gratitude. And it's interesting when you were talking at, at one point, I had this image of a willow tree. You, you feel to me like this combination of gentleness and strength and so i think that is really what my gratitude is about is i i see this person who this is the first time we've spoken although i've read your book a couple times now but we 
uh, I have this sense of you as someone who is deeply rooted and strong in your being. And yet there is this flexibility and this willingness to move and to be blown about by the wind and to be just to be what needs to be to meet the moment. And I think that is such a beautiful combination of knowing yourself, being rooted in yourself, and also this movement of whatever is now emerging and whatever, whoever it is you're becoming. So I'm grateful for recognizing that in you, for seeing that in you. You can tell me if that feels accurate or not, but it's my perception of, of you. Mm, I love that. That's such a gorgeous reflection. And I think that particular combination of skills is so important when we are working at inclusivity um, on all fronts, cultural, internally, and um, even ancestrally, because there are lots of different ways of looking at the world. And I think it's important that we be flexible to, um, to allow room and uh, allow ourselves to be changed by differences and to be welcoming towards those differences, uh, even if they are in direct opposition with who we are. But at the same time, we do need to stay rooted in our own knowing. So I think that's a beautiful combination of things. And I love the image of a willow tree. It fits with my hair too. <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, one last question. The thing I'm curious about is where at this point in your journey, what area of belonging are you stretching into? You know, at the time of this conversation, we are sort of in the midst of this global pandemic, which is causing a great deal of disorientation and suffering and uh, confusion in the world um, and I like everyone I'm going through a whole range of experiences around that and I think what I'm trying to get comfortable with my edge right now is around the strange quiet of this time and the ultimate confusion of not knowing how this is going to turn out, not having a light at the end of the tunnel mm -hmm. of how we're going to get through this. Um, so my edge right now is belonging with that confusion and really allowing myself to be surprised by what may or may not emerge from this confusion. So it's a combination of, uh, I think, being this still point while at the same time being alert to what comes of all of this. Yeah. And it's 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 not that easy. It's a little bit like being on a, a stormy sea. You know, you're sort of weathering. You have the resilience to weather these 
waves, um, but there is no land in sight. So really tapping into that resilience and um, hoping to be of some use in all of it. Yes, and I think a lot of people listening can can relate to that perspective. So I think, is there anything else that you wanted to say that I didn't ask you? I usually ask that question and I forgot, so. Oh, uh, well, I, th- I think all that needed to be said was said. <laughs> of course, I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours. I appreciate the, the depth of your questions, Daphne. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So thank you so much, Topopaz. Really very uh, moving in many, many places for me. So thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Until we meet again. (laughs) Yes. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to Beyond Podcast. For more conversations with brave and experimental artists and makers, and to learn more about Within, head on over to DaphneCohn.com. You can follow the podcast and everything else beyond on Instagram at Daphne Cohn. You can support the podcast and the artists and makers on it by going to iTunes Podcasts and subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to do that, and thank you for listening. Thank you.